0: section forty six of annual reports to the massachusetts board of education by horace mann this librivox recording is in the public domain twelfth annual report eighteen forty eight part one gentlemen massachusetts may be regarded either as a state by herself or as a member of a mighty and yet increasing confederacy of states in the former capacity she has great and abiding interests which are mainly dependent upon her own domestic or internal policy in the latter relation her fate depends upon the will of her partners in the association hence although in regard to all nations the minister for foreign affairs is the officer of first importance in the state yet in regard to our own commonwealth the home department has decided precedence as an individual state the geographical extent of massachusetts and her civil and social interests will remain the same but when compared or rather contrasted with the vast domain and the magnificent and overshadowing interests of the whole union she is and from year to year must be growing relatively less and less and less at the epoch of the revolution she was one of thirteen states now she is one of thirty. Even so late as 1790, when the first census of the United States was taken, there were but three states whose population exceeded hers. Deducting slaves, of whom she had none, there were but two. Her population at that time amounted to about one-tenth part of the population of the whole Union. It is now much below one-twentieth, at the time too of the adoption of the federal constitution the area of massachusetts bore some assignable and palpable proportion to that of the whole united states the mississippi was then the western boundary of the nation now our domain not only extends to the pacific but stretches through almost seventeen degrees of latitude upon that ocean florida then lay between us and the gulf of mexico and the gates of the mississippi river being liable at any time to be closed against the western states their only unobstructed egress to the atlantic was through eastern ports now the gulf is our southern boundary and the mississippi and its tributaries with their more than sixteen thousand miles of waters navigable by steam afford a channel capacious enough to drain the west of its vast productions and then with the refluent tide of commerce to supply their demands for foreign merchandise territorially considered the loss of cape cod or of one of the few acres that compose the islands of nantucket and the vineyard would be greater to massachusetts than the loss of massachusetts would be to the union our native and beloved state indeed seems contracting and dwindling away so fast as to suggest the idea of its more careful perambulation to see if some clandestine and rapacious neighbor has not incurred the curse of the mosaic law by removing our landmarks inward and inward it is only by taking massachusetts as a unit and comparing her area with that of other states in the union that we can realize how narrow and diminutive she is becoming ohio and kentucky could each be divided into five states and each of those ten be larger than our own new york pennsylvania north carolina alabama louisiana mississippi and tennessee would each make considerably more than six states or the whole of them more than forty-two states of the size of massachusetts michigan illinois iowa wisconsin georgia and arkansas are each equal in territory to seven such states as ours amounting to another group of forty-two virginia and florida are each equal to more than eight missouri is equal to nine and texas alone according to the boundaries now claimed by her would make forty-four such states taking an official estimate of the area of the united states exclusive of the portion lately acquired from mexico it is divisible into three hundred and seventy-six such states as massachusetts the territory ceded by the treaty with mexico which was ratified on the thirtieth day of may last exclusive of what is claimed by texas would make more than seventy-two states of equal dimensions hence it is plain that massachusetts territorially considered constitutes not exceeding in round numbers one four hundred and forty-eighth part of the union to which she belongs or far less than the proportion which a single degree bears to the three hundred and sixty degrees of a circle the bull's hide mentioned in virgil's epic would nearly enclose her in other elements of national greatness in mineral resources in productiveness of soil and in natural facilities for internal intercourse she falls far below even this insignificant fraction she has not an inland bay not a navigable river no gold is scattered among her sands granite is her best mineral and ice the only pearl to be found in her waters so far too as political power founded on numbers is concerned massachusetts is shrinking hardly less rapidly than in the relative compass of her borders out of two hundred and thirty representatives in the national congress she has but ten and the next census now so soon to be taken will seriously reduce this meagre proportion in the first congress she had eight out of sixty-five or one in eight and a fraction instead of one in twenty-three as at present with waning prospects for the future. In the presidential election of the current year, she gives but twelve out of two hundred and ninety votes. In choosing electors, therefore, in declaring war and in making peace, and in all the mighty interests, political and moral, that depend upon war and peace, in the deep pecuniary stake which every commercial and manufacturing people have in questions of foreign commerce and domestic currency, and in all civil, military, and diplomatic appointments which require the concurrence of the Senate, Massachusetts is at the mercy of her sisters, and if those sisters become imperious and aggressive, as some of them give significant tokens of becoming, she must succumb and suffer, like the abused Cordelia among the haughty gonerals and regans of the family. This picture is no fancy sketch it is drawn from the original without the exaggeration of a colour or a line we are confronted by these stern realities these incontrovertible facts and no illusions of a poetic temperament no complacent retrospection over periods of past renown can avert or delay our impending fate like the foolish bird which supposes it can avoid danger by hiding its head from its pursuer we may hide our eyes and avert our thoughts from all contemplation of the fortunes that await us but those fortunes will nevertheless overtake us with a speed that we cannot escape from and a resistlessness that we cannot overcome what then shall save our native and beloved state from vanishing quite away from being unknown in the councils of the nation and lost to the history of the world in our domestic legislation and in all our social relationships what policy shall prevail and by what spirit shall we be animated in order to avert so deplorable a fate has not every patriot every worthy son of a pilgrim sire an answer at hand if massachusetts can no longer challenge respect on account of her numbers she must challenge it on account of her character if she is no longer visible by her magnitude she must become so by her light she must be like hesper fairest of all the train of night and compensate for the diminutiveness of her size by the intenseness of her brilliancy let us reflect then in the first place that massachusetts has an absolute as well as a relative existence she exists for her present people and for their posterity as well as for the union at large though relatively declining when compared with the whole country yet there is an actual and constant increase in her numbers within her narrow borders she will soon have a million of people and what finite power can adequately comprehend the joys and sorrows the hopes and fears the honour or shame of a million of human beings belonging to the same generation or sum up the fearful aggregate of happiness or misery for themselves and their descendants let us thank heaven too that there are other standards of greatness besides vastness of territory and other forms of wealth besides mineral deposits or agricultural exuberance though every hill were a potosi though every valley like that of the nile were rank with fatness yet might a nation be poor in the most desperate sense benighted in the darkness of barbarism and judgment stricken of heaven for its sins a state has local boundaries which it cannot rightfully transcend but the realm of intelligence the sphere of charity the moral domain in which the soul can expand and expatiate are illimitable vast and boundless as the omnipresence of the being that created them worldly treasure is of that nature that rust may corrupt or the moth destroy or thieves steal but even upon the earth there are mental treasures which are unapproachable by fraud, impregnable to violence, and whose value does not perish but is redoubled with the using. A state, then, is not necessarily fated to insignificance because its dimensions are narrow, nor doomed to obscurity and powerlessness because its numbers are few. Athens was small, yet low as were her moral aims she lighted up the whole earth as a lamp lights up a temple judea was small but her prophets and her teachers were and will continue to be the guides of the world the narrow strip of half cultivable land that lies between her eastern and western boundaries is not massachusetts but her noble and incorruptible men her pure and exalted women the children in all her schools whose daily lessons are the preludes and rehearsals of the great duties of life and the prophecies of future eminence these are the state under the providence of god our means of education are the grand machinery by which this raw material of human nature can be worked up into inventors and discoverers into skilled artisans and scientific farmers into scholars and jurists into the founders of benevolent institutions and the great expounders of ethical and theological science by means of early education these embryos of talent may be quickened which will solve the difficult problems of political and economical law and by them too the genius may be kindled which will blaze forth in the poets of humanity our schools far more than they have done may supply the presidents and professors of colleges and superintendents of public instruction all over the land and send not only into our sister states but across the atlantic the men of practical science to superintend the construction of the great works of art here too may those judicial powers be developed and invigorated which will make legal principles so clear and convincing as to prevent appeals to force and should the clouds of war ever lower over our country some hero may be found the nursling of our schools and ready to become the leader of our armies that best of all heroes who will secure the glories of a peace unstained by the magnificent murders of the battlefield the fortunes of a state depend upon antecedent causes working with greater or less energy through longer or shorter periods of time by virtue of this universal law the future condition of the people of massachusetts will be modified and to a great extent determined by the force of causes now put in operation enlightened reason discerns the connection between cause and effect it measures the efficiency of causes and thus to a great extent it is able to adopt and adapt means to the accomplishment of designed ends feeble and erring as is the reason of man yet in this attribute far more nearly than in any other does he preserve the divine image in which he was originally formed supposing matter to have been first created by the fiat of the almighty a substantial and beautiful analogy may be traced between the methods pursued by the creator and the creature in the formation of the works of their hands when the fulness of time for creating the parent of the human race had arrived we must suppose the idea or archetype of a man to have existed in the divine mind as really as the dust of the earth from which he was to be formed existed in his hand and that in obedience to the sovereign volition all the elements of which man is composed the oxygen the hydrogen the nitrogen the carbon and all the rest were brought together and were arranged into his hundreds of bones and of muscles his thousands of blood vessels and his millions of nerves in fine into his limbs and into the manifold apparatus of his senses into that wonderful organ the heart and if anything can surpass the heart as a miracle of creative power into that still more wonderful organ the brain we must suppose i say that the elements for the formation of this work were assigned each to its appropriate place until god saw the noble and majestic structure of the human form before him perfect in all its parts at a vast distance but still in humble imitation of the divine processes does man proceed for the completion of every work of his hands the architect for instance through the medium of his senses acquires a knowledge of all the various properties of all the substances which enter into the construction of an edifice by his reason he discovers the special uses and capabilities of all the materials to be employed then in the solitude of his closet or in the darkness of midnight he revives in his mind the images of all the substances and ingredients necessary to his work he measures and arranges and combines the ideas of them he applies to them the architectural laws of fitness proportion and strength until at last the grand conception of the edifice whether sacred temple or human dwelling rises in his mind complete from foundation to turret he brings together and adjusts the ideas of things just as an omnipotent arm would bring together and adjust the ponderous things themselves after this he orders the materials to be collected from their respective localities it may be from different quarters of the globe the wood from the forest the marble from the quarry the iron from the mine the bricks from the clay pit the glass the furniture the tapestry and so forth each from its place until that ideal image which had before risen up in the silent recesses of his mind now stands forth in full and majestic proportions embodied in visible and enduring substance and supplying for centuries to come a fit place for the dwelling of man or for the worship of god so when the garden of eden was planted and when every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for use was made to grow out of the ground we must suppose that the creator proceeding upon the perfect ideas already in his mind mingled together in due proportion those few chemical elements which in their various combinations make up the almost infinite variety of the vegetable world until all of nourishment and perfume and beauty which enters into our imagination of paradise clustered and glowed and bloomed around, and filled the air with its sweets. In like manner the gardener, who wishes to bring together within a narrow compass specimens of the various plants and flowers that grow between the equator and the Arctic, first acquires a knowledge of whatever he would cultivate. He classifies them and arranges all the classes in his mind according to their respective natures. He encloses and prepares his grounds, and then he gathers together seed and plant and vine indigenous and exotic on some he pours a double portion of the sun some he removes into the shade others he buries in darkness to imitate the growth of caverns and others still he surrounds with ice to reproduce the dwarfish vegetation of the frigid zone for some he prepares a soil dry as an arabian desert and for others he makes an artificial pool until that which at first was only a bodiless creation of the fancy in the mind of the designer becomes a utility and an embellishment sustaining the life and ministering to the luxury of men now it is the especial province and function of the statesman and the lawgiver of all those indeed whose influence moulds or modifies public opinion to study out the eternal principles which conduce to the strength wisdom and righteousness of a community to search for these principles as for hidden riches to strive for them as one would strive for his life and then to form public institutions in accordance with them and he is not worthy to be called a statesman he is not worthy to be a lawgiver or leader among men who either through the weakness of his head or the selfishness of his heart is incapable of marshalling in his mind the great ideas of knowledge, justice, temperance, and obedience to the laws of God, on which foundation alone the structure of human welfare can be erected, who is not capable of organizing these ideas into a system, and then of putting that system into operation as a mechanic does a machine. This is the only true statesmanship." the chief men in society whether they derive their preeminence from birth or wealth or office or superiority in natural endowments are mainly responsible for the institutions they leave behind them because it is in their power to form or conform those institutions according to their own ideas of excellence the leading spirits of one of the great nations of antiquity had no higher idea of female excellence than that of personal beauty and the attractions of voluptuousness and hence their brightest and most boasted female ornament was a courtesan the leading spirits of that other ancient nation whose perpetual and disgraceful boast it was that it had conquered the whole world were proud to trace back their ferocious lineage through patrician and regal blood to the wolf that suckled their founder a tradition which whether fact or fiction is full of allegorical truth the founders of communities contemporaneous with our own and now component parts of this republic filled their veins at their birth with the cancerous blood of slavery which has now spread itself over and corrupted the whole organism and yet the tormented sufferer contends for his disease as for his life fights for the devil that rends him because as he affirms the exorcism of the evil spirit will be death to himself for centuries a leading feature in the policy of great britain towards ireland was the utter abolition of all education which did not conform to the government standard of theology and was not administered by teachers of its own choosing none but a protestant was allowed to keep a school from seventeen o nine to seventeen eighty two any roman catholic who should presume to be a schoolmaster or assistant to a schoolmaster or even a tutor in a private family was to be transported and if the party returned then he was to be adjudged guilty of high treason and to be hung drawn and quartered a great portion of the present agony of starving diseased distracted ireland is directly referable to the ignorance which has resulted from those imperial interdicts against knowledge no other act of british oppression has been so fatal in driving sanity out of the head and kindness out of the heart of that maddened country as the cruel laws by which every child in ireland was prohibited from nourishing himself with a grain of knowledge unless he would swallow with it a scruple of theology these are a few specimens taken from the great storehouse of history showing how those who enact laws and organize public institutions predetermine the fate of the masses and are not all those who control legislation and lead public opinion among ourselves adjured by these admonitions of history as well as by the voice of conscience and the precepts of christianity to form a model idea of a healthy industrious frugal temperate wise christian commonwealth and then to exert all their faculties and all their activities in turning this idea into a living reality without undervaluing any other human agency it may be safely affirmed that the common school improved and energized as it can easily be may become the most effective and benignant of all the forces of civilization two reasons sustain this position in the first place there is a universality in its operation which can be affirmed of no other institution whatever if administered in the spirit of justice and conciliation all the rising generation may be brought within the circle of its reformatory and elevating influences and in the second place the materials upon which it operates are so pliant and ductile as to be susceptible of assuming a greater variety of forms than any other earthly work of the creator the inflexibility and ruggedness of the oak when compared with the lithe sapling or the tender germ are but feeble emblems to typify the docility of childhood when contrasted with the obduracy and intractableness of man it is these inherent advantages of the common school which in our own state have produced results so striking from a system so imperfect and an administration so feeble in teaching the blind and the deaf and dumb in kindling the latent spark of intelligence that lurks in an idiot's mind and in the more holy work of reforming abandoned and outcast children education has proved what it can do by glorious experiments these wonders it has done in its infancy and with the lights of limited experience but when its faculties shall be fully developed when it shall be trained to wield its mighty energies for the protection of society against the giant vices which now invade and torment it against intemperance avarice war slavery bigotry the woes of want and the wickedness of waste then there will not be a height to which these enemies of the race can escape which it will not scale nor a titan among them all whom it will not slay i proceed then in endeavouring to show how the true business of the schoolroom connects itself and becomes identical with the great interests of society the former is the infant immature state of those interests the latter their developed adult state as the child is father to the man so may the training of the schoolroom expand into the institutions and fortunes of the state physical education in the worldly prosperity of mankind health and strength are indispensable ingredients reflect for a moment what an inroad upon the comfort of a family and its means of support is a case of chronic sickness or debility in a single one of its members should a farmer contract to support and to continue to pay his laborer or a manufacturer his operative whether able or unable to work they would demand a serious abatement of wages as a premium for that risk but whatever drawback a sick member would be to the pecuniary prosperity of a family or a sick laborer to that of an employer bound to support him just such a drawback is a sick or disabled member of the community to the financial prosperity of the state to which he belongs the amount of loss consequent upon such sickness or disability may not be drawn out of the public treasury but it is subtracted from the common property of the state in a way still more injurious than if the same amount of gold were taken from the public coffers by warrant of the executive money so taken would be transferred to another hand but it would still exist but the want of health and strength is a dead loss to the community and whenever the next valuation is taken there will be a corresponding deficit in the aggregate of national property hence every citizen as such is pecuniarily interested in the health and strength of all his fellow-citizens it is right therefore that he should look upon them all not only as a benevolent and christian man would do pitying and succouring their misfortunes but he should look upon them also as a man of business as one who contributes or is bound to contribute to a reserved fund from which all the non-producing sick and valetudinary are supported men see this community of interests plainly enough when the sickness comes in the form of a pestilence and decimates and re-decimates a city arresting all the currents of business gathering the well about the sick-bed or the hearse or scattering them abroad with fear but in the aggregate of its periods of sickness and in the number of its victims the plague itself is less destructive to human life than the ordinary and stereotyped causes of mortality which familiarity has bereft of their terrors it is the concentration of its havoc that makes pestilence terrific this concentration men's senses can perceive and therefore they are affrighted but to the eye of reason that is most alarming which is most injurious, and it is this eye with which a statesman or philosopher should look when he takes a survey of human interests. Leaving out then for the present purpose all consideration of the pains of sickness and the anguish of bereavement, the momentous truth still remains that sickness and premature death are positive evils for the statesman and political economist to cope with the earth as a hospital for the diseased would soon wear out the love of life and if but half of mankind were sick famine from non-production would speedily threaten the whole now modern science has made nothing more certain than that both good and ill health are the direct result of causes mainly within our own control in other words the health of the race is dependent upon the conduct of the race the health of the individual is determined primarily by his parents secondarily by himself the vigorous growth of the body its strength and its activity its powers of endurance and its length of life on the one hand and dwarfishness sluggishness infirmity and premature death on the other are all the subjects of unchangeable laws these laws are ordained of god but the knowledge of them is left to our diligence and the observance of them to our free agency these laws are very few they are so simple that all can understand them and so beautiful that the pleasure of contemplating them even independent of their utility is a tenfold reward for all the labor of their acquisition the laws i repeat are few the circumstances however under which they are to be applied are exceedingly various and complicated these circumstances embrace the almost infinite varieties of our daily life exercise and rest sleeping and watching eating drinking and abstinence the affections and passions exposure to vicissitudes of temperature to dryness and humidity to the effluvia and exhalations of dead animal or decaying vegetable matter in fine they embrace all cases where excesses indiscretions or exposures may induce disease or where exercise temperance cleanliness and pure air may avert it hence it would be wholly impossible to write out any code of rules and regulations applicable to all cases so too the occasions for applying the laws to new circumstances recur so continually that no man can have a mentor at his side in the form of a physician or physiologist to direct his conduct in new emergencies even the most favored individual in ninety-nine cases in a hundred must prescribe for himself and hence the uncompromising necessity that all children should be instructed in these laws and not only instructed but that they should receive such a training during the whole course of pupilage, as to enlist the mighty forces of habit on the side of obedience and that their judgment also should be so developed and matured that they will be able to discriminate between different combinations of circumstances and to adapt in each case the regimen to the exigency looking to the various disorders and disabilities which as every one's experience or observation shows him do invade and prostrate the human frame some may be slow to believe that all men or even the majority of them will ever be able to administer to those which fall to their share but in the first place it may be remarked that a judicious course of physical training faithfully observed through all the years of infancy childhood and adolescence will avert a vast proportion of the pains and distempers that now besiege and subdue the human system or some of its vital organs and hence that one may safely be ignorant of symptoms and of remedies which he will never have occasion to recognize or to use as one who seeks a residence remote from wild beasts has no practical occasion to know how they are hunted and in the next place, that if every one does not know in all cases how to prescribe for himself, yet he may always know what part of his machinery is out of order, and how necessary it is to apply promptly to a repairer. Even such a degree of anatomical knowledge as enables one to point out the suffering organ is of great value, for doubtless not merely children but ignorant men have killed themselves by giving a false location to their malady or which is the same kind of error have caused their physician so to prescribe as to inflict disease on a sound organ instead of healing a diseased one it is not every one that can inform the dentist which tooth is the offender but to the objection that all men and women cannot be physicians the decisive answer is that the physician must be acquainted with the laws of disease which are countless in number and are ever developing new symptoms but the sound man or woman needs to be acquainted only with the laws of health which are few and whose results though acting upon different systems are substantially uniform the pharmacopoeia of the physician embraces nearly all minerals and all vegetables and several of the more offensive classes of the animal kingdom with the various mechanical and chemical combinations which can be formed from or among them but the whole pharmacopoeia of the healthy man comprises but little more than pure water and pure air simple viands vegetables and bread in quality they are as different as in number as different as the sweet and savoury contents of storeroom and larder from those acrid and mephitic substances which make the druggist's warehouse a universal conservatory of particular abominations is it too much then to say that the leaders of society whether makers of law or creators of fashion and custom are bound by the most solemn obligations of duty as well as by interest to curtail the ravages of sickness and untimely death and as far as possible to make health and longevity the common property of men the civil government takes cognizance of pauperism and men of worldly substance are obliged to bear its expenses the disabilities of ill health and the pecuniary losses by early death are among the leading causes of pauperism he therefore who would prevent the latter must prevent the former the civil government exercises penal jurisdiction over crimes and over the grosser vices and is it not true that many of those morbid appetites and unnatural desires that seek to assuage their longings by indulgence and excess have their origin in the action of a distempered body upon the mind rather than of the mind upon the body indeed how often have pure and pious hearts encountered a relentless antagonist to their highest and most devout resolves and aspirations in the pruriances and hankerings of the body in which they were imprisoned many a waspish man would become amiable if he could be hung on a new set of nerves many a misanthropic disposition would warm into kindliness could the acrid humours of the body be evaporated or washed away the dyspeptic contends with evil spirits blue and black against whom the eupeptic bears an invincible charm the civil government too is bound to provide for the insane both for the security of the sane and for the recovery or amelioration of the insane the diseases incident to several bodily organs give direct birth to insanity a disease of the brain induces it at once indeed insanity is often only an exacerbation of some bodily disorder as a brook swells into a river so the inflammation of certain organs matures into insanity general health would greatly reduce the size of those deplorable necessities of an imperfect civilization hospitals for the insane in extraordinary emergencies governments do not hesitate to interfere for preventing the spread of contagion and for excluding the media through which diseases are propagated when sudden pestilence breaks out in a city the infected district is put under a bar of non-intercourse with the healthy when a crew of men or a cargo of merchandise arrives from an infected port a quarantine is enforced in these cases the civil magistracy acts under the impulse of fear but has not government a capacity of reflection and foresight as well as a susceptibility to fear is a civilized government of modern times to be classified with those orders of existence that have propensity and appetite merely but not reason and providence if not then surely is the government bound to do all it can against the wastings of ill-health and the havoc of unnecessary death and it is bound to use equal vigilance whether these calamities invade us from abroad or are born of home-bred ignorance and folly and as has been before intimated who does not know that the aggregate suffering and loss from general and diffused causes of ill-health are infinitely greater than from the sudden eruption or outbreak of all the contagions and epidemics with which we are ever afflicted for this greater evil, then, society is bound to provide, not a remedy, but something better than a remedy, a preventive. Intelligence and obedience would be an antidote sovereign in its efficacy and universal in its applicability Now it is beyond all question that with the rarest exceptions every child in the Commonwealth may be endued with this intelligence, and, what is equally important, trained to conforming personal habits. Enlightened by knowledge, and impelled by the force of early and long-continued habit, he would not only see the reasonableness of adapting his regimen to his condition in the varying circumstances of life, but he would feel a personal interest in doing so, as men now feel a personal interest in procuring the gratifications of money or of power. Habit and knowledge will coincide— they will draw in the same direction they will not be antagonists as is now so generally the case with those adult men who acquire sound knowledge after the bad habits have been enthroned the blind force of the latter spurning all the arguments and warnings of the former this work may be mainly done during the period of nonage or before children are emancipated from parental control let a child wash himself all over every morning for sixteen years and he would as soon go without his breakfast as without his bath this is but a specimen of the effect of a long continued observance of nature's health regulations not only will a general knowledge of human physiology or the laws of health do much to supersede the necessity of a knowledge of pathology or the laws of disease but the former is as much better than the latter as prevention is better than remedy as much better as all the comforts and securities of an unburned dwelling are than two-thirds of its value in money from the insurance office. A general diffusion of physiological knowledge will save millions annually to the state. It will gradually revolutionize many of the absurd customs and usages of society, conforming them more and more to the rules of reason and true enjoyment, and withdrawing them more and more from the equally vicious extremes of barbarism and of artificial life it will restrain the caprices and follies of fashion in regard to dress and amusement and subordinate its ridiculous excesses to the laws of health and decency it will reproduce the obliterated lines that once divided day and night it will secure cleanliness and purity more intimate and personal than any laundress can supply it will teach men to eat that they may live instead of living that they may eat when satan approaches in that form in which he has hitherto been most seductive and successful the form of intoxicating beverages those who wear the talisman of this science will have an antidote against his temptations it is a lesson of unspeakable importance to learn that nourishment and not pleasure is the primary object of food god indeed in his benevolence has made the reception of this food not only reparative but pleasant but to lose sight of the first object in a brutish desire for the second is voluntarily to alter our position in the scale of being and from the rank of men to descend to the order of beasts physiology would reverse the ancient fable and transform men into swine who now sit at epicurean tables and drink of the circean cup every intelligent man deplores the almost universal condition of our dwelling-houses and public edifices which have been built without regard to the necessities of the human system for pure air were physiology universally understood no man would think of erecting a mansion without an apparatus for its thorough ventilation at all times any more than without windows for the admission of light apertures and flues for the ingress and egress of air into and from sitting-rooms and sleeping-rooms are as necessary to the architectural idea of a well-finished house as nasal orifices are to the anatomical idea of a man and a dwelling without the means of ventilation is as incomplete and as unsightly as a man without a nose a knowledge of this science would establish a new standard of beauty the classic standard of the greeks in which strength was a primary and indispensable element and it would demonstrate the unspeakable folly and guilt of those matrimonial alliances where hereditary disease and even insanity itself are wedded and the health mind and happiness of a family of children are sacrificed for the mercenary object of a dowry but an immunity from expense privation pain and bereavement is not the only boon connected with health and longevity sound health is not merely the negation of ill it is a medium through which alone we can gain access to many invaluable blessings it enhances every pleasure and is indispensable to the full performance of almost every duty the elements environ us with the fatal dangers against which health is our only preserver the vicissitudes of the climate must be encountered we have no power to arrest the north wind that congeals by its cold nor the south that dissolves by its heat the humidity of one part of the year and the aridness of another are equally beyond human control as our planet wheels around the sun now turning up our hemisphere to its vertical and fervid rays and now by its oblique position reducing temperature to the opposite extreme we have no choice but to attend its circuit and abide its changes it is certain that nothing but health will enable us to survive exposure to these natural extremes a thousand causes exist too which engender impurity in the air we breathe we ourselves being the principal, nothing but knowledge can enable us to eliminate the grossest of these noxious ingredients and nothing but health to resist the poison of those which remain the waste constantly going on in the particles that compose our bodies lays us under an ever-recurring necessity to replenish their exhausted substance by the reception of food and here if the food we take in is not subjected to the transforming and assimilating power of the alimentary organs a power which is wholly lost with the loss of health it will prove our destruction each of our organs is an avenue through which death may invade us and innumerable deaths, that is, innumerable agencies, each one of which has the power of causing death, hold perpetual siege at every avenue, and watch for an opportunity to enter and destroy. And yet air and nourishment, heat and cold, moisture and dryness, we must encounter, and we must have, for they are the permanent conditions of our being. How intelligible, then, and how authoritative does the doctrine become, that high health and high health alone is harmony with nature a person without high health is just as much at war with nature as a guilty soul is at war with the spirit of god and the struggles of our frail bodies against the resistless might of the elements will be as unavailing as that of our souls against the retributions of omnipotence the capacities of the body for resisting the force of the elements and for appropriating and assimilating the substances around it into its own substance is one thing its capacities for labour are another let any man who has fallen from a state of vigorous health to that of a valetudinary compare his standard of a day's work in the one state with that in the other and he can then form a better estimate of the value of the health that measures the difference between the two conditions sound health opens new and more lucrative employments to its possessor ill health often closes a career of the highest usefulness and though the mind may have been prepared by splendid natural endowments and by years of study and experience to lead forward the race in the march of civilization yet it is stricken down in the midst of its beneficence by the assaults of disease and thus the onward movement of humanity is arrested or becomes retrograde and must wait through another cycle for another leader what great works in art in science and in morals have been left unfinished or unattempted by reason of the slow decays or the sudden extinction of health and of life when any man of sense has an important work to perform the first thing he does is to provide a fitting instrument a tool a machine or whatever it may be with which the work can be done health is the prime instrument for the performance of all the labours of life one more idea is inseparable from this subject when the religious man reflects that our bodies are god's workmanship he sees that the laws impressed upon them can be no less than god's laws if these laws then are god's laws we are bound to recognize and obey them we are bound to obey a law which god has impressed upon the body on the same principle that we are bound to obey a law which he has impressed upon the soul and here how pertinent and forcible is the great idea which has been set forth so distinctly by a late writer that when we know a law to be god's law it matters not by what means we may have arrived at the knowledge the law becomes imperatively and equally binding upon us between the law of the body and the law of the soul there may indeed sometimes arise what we call a conflict of duty when the subordinate obligation of the former must yield to the supremacy of the latter but this refers to relative importance, and not to inherent obligation. My general conclusion, then, under this head, is that it is the duty of all the governing minds in society, whether in office or out of it, to diffuse a knowledge of these beautiful and beneficent laws of health and life throughout the length and breadth of the State, to popularize them, to make them in the first place the common acquisition of all, and through education and custom the common inheritance of all so that the healthful habits naturally growing out of their observance shall be inbred in the people exemplified in the personal regimen of each individual incorporated into the economy of every household observable in all private dwellings and in all public edifices especially in those buildings which are erected by capitalists for the residence of their workpeople or for renting to the poorer classes obeyed by supplying cities with pure water by providing public baths public walks and public squares by rural cemeteries by the drainage and sewerage of populous towns and by whatever else may promote the general salubrity of the atmosphere in fine by a religious observance of all these sanitary regulations with which modern science has blessed the world for this thorough diffusion of sanitary intelligence the common school is the only agency it is however an adequate agency let human physiology be introduced as an indispensable branch of study into our public schools let no teacher be approved who is not a master of its leading principles and of their applications to the varying circumstances of life let all the older classes in the schools be regularly and rigidly examined upon this study by the school committees and a speedy change would come over our personal habits over our domestic usages and over the public arrangements of society temperance and moderation would not be such strangers at the table fashion like european sovereigns if not compelled to abdicate and fly would be forced to compromise for the continued possession of her throne by the surrender to her subjects of many of their natural rights. A sixth order of architecture would be invented, the hygienic, which, without subtracting at all from the beauty of any other order, would add a new element of utility to them all. The health regulations of cities would be issued in a revised code, a code that would bear the scrutiny of science. And as the result and reward of all, a race of men and women loftier in stature, firmer in structure, fairer in form, and better able to perform the duties and bear the burdens of life would revisit the earth. The Minikin specimens of the race who now go on dwindling and tapering from parent to child would reascend to manhood and womanhood. Just in proportion as the laws of health and life were discovered and obeyed, would pain, disease, insanity, and untimely death cease from among men? Consumption would remain, but it would be consumption in the active sense. End of section forty six. Recording by Maria Casper.